Hi, listeners. This is the last of our four New Reads November episodes, and I can think of no better book to spotlight than Angie Thomas's game-changing YA novel, The Hate You Give. I received countless requests for this one when I first posed the New Reads November concept a few months ago, and I'm thrilled to finally be delivering on them today. Published in 2017, The Hate You Give has been a seemingly constant fixture on bestseller lists and in the broader cultural conversation for the better part of the last two years. It's won awards and inspired a recent movie. Most importantly, it's introduced young readers to the Black Lives Matter movement. The book, which follows 16-year-old Star Carter in the months after she witnesses her unarmed best friend being shot and killed by a police officer, gives a relatable face to stories that probably seem distant to many teens when they hear about them on the news. Angie Thomas channels her feelings about police brutality and the killings of Oscar Grant, Alton Sterling, Michael Brown, and far too many others in writing Star's story. I want to take a moment to acknowledge just how sensitive these issues are. As always, I've done my best in this episode to approach tough conversations thoughtfully and respectfully, and I'm grateful to my guest, Tracy Thomas, for being part of this rich and at times challenging discussion. While these talks can feel uncomfortable, I firmly believe that getting over our discomfort and setting our fears of sounding stupid aside is the only way to ensure that we gain empathy and learn to better understand experiences that are different than our own. Please keep this in mind as you listen to episode 24. Tracy Thomas is a host of The Stacks, a podcast about books and reading. The show engages a variety of guests about their life and reading habits. The Stacks also has its own book club in which Tracy and her guests take a deep dive into a specific book. You can find the podcast on your favorite listening platform and follow along on Instagram at The Stacks Pod. Book lovers, you're going to want to check this one out. Tracy lives in LA and in her other life is a fitness instructor. Thanks so much to Tracy for being a guest on episode 24. With her help, I've assembled quite a list of resources that you can review in the show notes at www.ssrpodcast.com slash listen. Like the hate you give phenomenon itself, this episode is bound to be a conversation starter, and I want you to get in on the discussion. Follow SSR on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod, and look us up on Facebook by searching the SSR podcast. We also have a smaller Facebook group for super fans who want to dig even deeper into the books we cover on the show. Search the SSR podcast community to find that one. As always, I humbly ask that you help spread the word about the podcast by telling your friends about it or posting about your favorite episode on social media. Your support goes a long way. Without further ado, it's time to discuss The Hate You Give. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Tracy. Thank you so much for joining us on SSR. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. This is a hotly anticipated episode that you are guesting on. I hope you know. I'm very nervous. I don't want to let people down. There's no pressure at all, but I will say when I announced that I was going to do New Reads November, because as you know, we typically do older titles, I can't even tell you how many emails, Instagram messages, tweets, everything I got 
was like, you have to do the hate you give. You have to do the hate you give. And so we're wrapping up the month with the hate you give. And I'm thrilled to be giving the listeners what they want. Finally. (laughs) I'm excited to be here. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous because I might have unpopular opinions about this book. So just letting you guys know, you might hate me in 20 minutes. We'll see. Disclaimer, everyone. Don't turn off the show yet. So let's talk (laughs) about that. A little background here. So one of my Instagram followers suggested that I reach out to Tracy to talk about The Hate You Give. And I did. And Tracy said, I'm interested, but just so you know, I didn't really like this book very much. And you were the first person that I know who didn't like the book that much. And I was actually pretty excited that you felt that way because too often on the show, I feel like I'm in an echo chamber and the guests and I are just kind of like agreeing with everything that the other has to say. And I think especially with a book like this that has been so popular, while some listeners might not necessarily agree with the things you have to say, it'll be a really interesting perspective. And I happen to have really enjoyed reading it. So I think we can definitely go back and forth and kind of like share experiences. Totally. Tell me about your reading experience with this book. What were your first impressions? Did you pick it up because of the hype? So I had not read a young adult book since The Hunger Games in 2011. Throwback. which I loved. I mean, I think like so great, but I was like, okay, I'll pick up this book. Everyone's talking about it. So I checked out of my library because I wasn't sure I wanted to own it. Cause I just wasn't sure. And I read it in two days. Like I read it quick. I, I, I had a fine time reading it and I appreciate the book for what it is. I just was not inspired by the book. And I thought that the hype was um, not for me. I just, let me say it this way. I don't know that this book was written for me and not just because I'm an adult, but also from my perspective, I'm a black woman. I've been focused and paying attention a lot to Black Lives Matter and police violence. And so this was something that I felt like was really, really not juvenile, but just a very like crash course in the topic. And I felt like it missed a lot of the nuance and the subtlety that I would have liked to see. But I enjoyed the book. Like I read it. It wasn't like I read it and was like, this is terrible. How will I get through it? I just was kind of like, oh, I'm slightly disappointed. I think I think it could have been more complex. I hear all of that and I think it's interesting to consider the book from the perspective of a grown adult who is like paying attention to the news and who is invested and aware and and engaged with what's going on in the world around us and then like compare that to the way maybe a kid in the middle of America would experience it. And totally, it's obviously hard for you or I to put ourselves in that situation. But I tried to while I was reading it, because similarly to you, I was like, okay, this is a very scary story that's happening. And it's very upsetting. But again, when you're watching the news a lot, like, you're right, it's a crash course, like it feels like something that maybe a kid should be reading, but a kid should be reading it. It's meant for kids. So I, I totally hear you. And I think it's a matter of like, trying to read it from the context of a kid who it's meant for and also appreciating it for for what it is which as you mentioned is a really good book I found an article in Vox about how rare it is for like a quote-unquote social issues YA book to also be a good book like there's so little overlap and the writer said it was probably inevitable that someone would write a YA novel about police shootings but it was not inevitable that it would be a good book And then they then go on to talk about how this is a good book and these characters are really engaging and you do feel interested in their lives beyond the quote unquote issues. And I would agree with that. Like I enjoyed it as a story. And I think that Angie Thomas did such a great job of building out lives for these characters that weren't wholly invested in 
the very scary conflict that was going on around police shootings in their neighborhood. Yeah, I think she did. I think she did a good job. I'll push back a little bit on on the audience part of it, just about like, you know, if who this book is written for. And I think that that is part of part of what didn't work for me about this book is I felt that this book was written for a very specific group of kids. Like and I, when I think about myself, you know, 15, 20 years ago as a teenager, or a young adult, I think that I would have felt that this book was a little bit like condescending. Like I would have been like, yeah, I know this. I get this. And maybe it's because I grew up in a city um, in California and maybe it's because I'm a black person. But like, I think that this book is written for a very, very specific audience. And when I say specific, I do mean um, I think it was written for a lot of like white mothers. Yeah. I think that really was the target audience, less young adults. But I think it was written for people who aren't paying attention to the news, who aren't involved you know, at all in, you know, this major national conflict. And I think that for that audience, it probably was really, really powerful. And I do think that the book is a good book, but I think it was oversimplified. I, I tend to think that kids are smarter than authors and adults think that they are. That's like, probably true. Think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like kids probably like they understand this kind of stuff on a more visceral level. Just like, I think, you know, when we were kids, there were things that were really upsetting to our parents that we were like, oh, no, that's just how it is now. Like, I think school shootings, for example, were really traumatizing for our parents. But as kids growing up, you know, in that Columbine age, it was something that we learned to cope and understand in a different way. And I wonder if that's similar to this police violence that urban kids, like not just black kids, but kids who live in urban cities where this kind of stuff is happening, Cleveland, Detroit, Oakland, you know, all those places. I wonder if those kids have a deeper understanding of this and that if this book might be simple for them as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And I think this is why it's so healthy for me to have all different kinds of guests with different backgrounds. And, you know, I mentioned this to my Instagram followers and that's how I was directed to you. Like, I really wanted to talk to a woman of color about this book because I, quite frankly, 15 years ago was a white girl growing up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. So my experience growing up was very different. And as a kid, even as a kid with liberal parents, like my mom has always been very liberal and has always been very open with me about current events. And we've always had really hard conversations about things like school shootings and police shootings. Like that was always a part of my world growing up. Like this book probably still would have blown my mind in the way that Angie Mm. Thomas may have wanted it to blow kids' minds. So I think like that's the beauty of these conversations is that like your lens that this would have been condescending to you. And it's interesting for me to hear that. But I was 100% the target audience for this book when I was in high school. And I thought that I knew everything. Like I sort of think, I don't think I thought that I needed to be informed. I don't like to use the word woke, but like, you know, I I don't think I thought that I needed this kind of a story to understand what was really going on in the world. But I do think that the hate you give creates like a face to an Mm -hmm. issue that kids in the suburbs like know what's going on. People are aware that there's violence and police shootings and and terrible things going on in urban areas. But I think to a kid growing up in the suburbs, there's not a face to that. And I think this book does effectively create that face. Right. Do you think that the face of this book is star then? Or do you think that for you, like, I guess the question is, do you think that star is what people are relating to? Or do you think that there is sympathy for Khalil in this book? For me, the face of the book was Khalil. 
A hundred percent. I think this book was more Khalil's story than Star's, and Star is sharing his story because he's obviously no longer around to tell his story. His life has been taken from him in like the worst possible way. So I think that just like learning more about his neighborhood and understanding like the things that were at stake in his life that brought him to a situation where he was in danger, those are things that I have obviously always known are wrong. But I I do think that it's interesting for there to be a story around it, like for there to be characters and to, for it to play out in this kind of a way, I, I think is effective for kids like me who grew up in the suburbs and like just didn't know anybody who was experiencing anything like this. I mean, we had a few kids at my high school that smoked weed and that was like the big thing. There just weren't conversations about anything really outside of that. And so... I live in New York City now and, you know, obviously my horizons have broadened greatly, but if I take myself back 15 years ago, like I was the girl that totally would have had her world rocked by a book like this in the best possible way. That's good to hear. Yeah, and I don't know (laughs) if that makes me sound naive and if it does, I certainly apologize to anybody who's offended by that, but I think taking myself back to my childhood self, I understand what this book can maybe do for kids who... Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I read this book a few months ago and when I read it, I wrote a review for it and I basically said like, I totally understand this book intellectually. Like I understand what this book is doing, but for me, I didn't get any of the feels. Do you know what I mean? I was like, sure, this book is teaching people things. Like I kind of had that moment of like, I see what Angie Thomas is doing and like good on her. And I hope this book helps people and like, my hope for the book, and I have no idea, I don't know if it, if it did this for you, is that it would inspire people to actually read about some of the real life violence that real people have experienced, because I think that those conversations then get more nuanced. And some of the stuff that I think makes this whole, you know, Black Lives Matter and, you know, police shooting unarmed men and women, I think some of the stuff that makes it really powerful and interesting to learn about and helps inform people about what's going on is reading and listening to the actual stories because this book removed a lot of the nuance that I think really complicates these issues when we start talking about what happens in the courtrooms, like what happens with these grand juries, what's the prosecutor's role, what's the police investigator's role, like all, there's so much more there. And I just hope that this book pushes people in that direction to learn more. There's like some amazing podcasts that have covered these police shootings. There's one on Philando Castile called, I'm not going to get the number right, like 37 seconds maybe. And then there's another one that just came out about the Laquan McDonald case, which was in Chicago four years ago, but the trial just ended. And I believe that one is called 16 shots. And they're both like so interesting and so well done. And you start to hear a deeper, more complex version of kind of like what the hate you give would be if you wanted more. So I would encourage people who liked the book and who felt like their eyes were opened to go ahead and go deeper and like hear some of the true stories. Cause I think that they're very powerful. And I'll include links to the podcast that you mentioned in the show notes for this episode so that listeners can check it out. Because I think you're right. This is a fictional account of something that's very serious. And I think there's always danger in that of not necessarily glamorizing a hard situation, but taking the real struggles out of it. It's really easy to write some of those struggles out when you're writing a book for teens. And so I think this is a good like intro course, maybe. Yeah. And I think the truth is that a lot of adults have read this book too, and maybe it's been a good wake-up call for people who aren't as informed as maybe you or I are. So I think, again, this is a really great intro for people who are actually willing to do a little bit more work in order to understand the actual things that are at stake here. And those podcast recommendations might be better for adult 
listeners, like if you're a parent or something listening to this right now and you think your kids might be interested, I would just encourage you to listen first just in case. I don't know. I don't have kids and I swear all the time and I think like horrible things are really, I'm really interested in them. So I'm a bad judge of that. But if you're interested in those podcasts, just if you have a kid, I don't know. Yeah. Parents, if you're listening to the show, then you are definitely like a cool mom because the title of this show is Shit She Read. So you're already like pretty open, but I think that's a good idea. These are really heavy issues and it's definitely like to your discretion what you're ready to share with your kids. I happen to know, Tracy, that you're like a much bigger fan of nonfiction than Mm -hmm. fiction. I know this from listening to your podcast, The Stacks, which I'll also link to in the show notes for this show. I also happen to have heard in one of your recent episodes that you're not necessarily somebody that falls in love with characters, like you're much more of a plot person. Do you think that that has anything to do with your feelings about this book? I'm just curious because I'm the opposite. I am like 100% character-driven reader. I would read a book that was 800 pages long that was just like an examination of characters and I would love every minute of it. And I think that's part of why I loved this book so much was because I couldn't help but fall in love with this family and with Khalil and his memory. And I'm just wondering if you think that plays into your feelings about the book at all. Um, yes and no. I thought these characters were like, they were good characters. I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I'm definitely not a fall in love with characters person. So saying a character was a good character is probably like a very high compliment for me. You're glowing uh, right now. This yeah. is Tracy glowing over a character. I'm like, yeah, they were good. Yeah. Uh, great. But I mean, one of the things that I was not wild about about this book was some of the dialogue between like Star and her dad. I was just like, this is like Sesame Street dialogue. It was like, do you understand why this is bad? And then she was like, yeah, daddy-o, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, girl, you got it. Like, it was just so like corny to me that the writing about things was fine. But then when people started talking to each other, I was like, oh my God, I hate this dialogue. Like Chris, the boyfriend. Yeah. Like some of those interactions between him and um, Seven and Star. I was just like, oh my God, please just cut, stop talking to each other, which normally I like talking to each other. But so some of that got in my way of liking the characters. But like, I thought the mom was really great. Star's mom. Love Lisa. She's the mom. I loved her. I did not like Carlos, but I don't know if I was supposed to like Carlos. I I don't know. I was not into him. Let's like, <laughs> so we've gotten so into this conversation, which I love. I'm going to do a quick setup for listeners here okay. because I think most people have read this book at this point, but just in case you haven't, here's the nitty gritty. What happens in this book? Honestly, it's going to take me more than a few minutes to describe. And Tracy, if I'm missing anything, feel free to let me know. Essentially, the book is about Star, who's a 16 year old girl. She lives in fictional town of Garden Heights, California. She happens to go to school at a more of like a suburban private school. It's called Williamson. So she's learned to kind of fit into whatever environment she's in. When she's at home in Garden Heights, she's hanging out with her black friends and the kids she grew up with. And she feels like she can kind of like let loose a little bit more. And she's not as mindful of the way that she's speaking. And she's like embracing like the music that her friends listen to. And like she really just can kind of relax a little bit. But when she's at Williamson... She's trying very hard not to be what she would call ghetto. Like she really doesn't want her white friends at school to have any reason to think that she's different and she's just trying to blend in. She's at a party in Garden Heights one night and she runs into an old friend named Khalil who she grew up with. They were very close. Khalil's grandmother used to babysit her so they really grew up together and there's a fight that breaks out at the party and so Khalil offers to get Star out of there And they're driving away, and they're pulled over by a white police officer who pulls them over, accusing Khalil of speeding, I believe was what he said, or his taillight was out, like some BS. 
accusation. And in Star's head, she's like running through all of the advice that her dad had given her from a young age about how to behave around police officers. And she's doing everything she can to sort of like fit that behavior properly. And Khalil is asked to get out of the car. These police officers are just awful to him. He has his hands against the car. And then at one point, he he opens the driver's side door to check on Star. And he goes to pull his hairbrush out of the car, out of his pocket. And the police officers shoot at him three times. And they go on to say, like, we thought that he was armed because he went to reach for something, which was his hairbrush. So Khalil is killed on the scene. Um, Star is there when it happens. And it's extremely upsetting. And the rest of the book kind of unfolds as she's navigating the aftermath. She becomes a witness. She has to speak to the grand jury about what happened. She is kind of dipping her toe into the pool of activism. And um, ultimately, spoiler alert, the police officer is not charged. And it's kind of this whole examination of like the way that Khalil is portrayed in the media and the way that the police officer is portrayed in the media, which are obviously very different. And Carlos, who Tracy mentioned, is a very interesting part of the story because Carlos is Star's uncle, who is black and a police officer. So Star has kind of this like interesting relationship with the police officers like she has one in her life that she loves and trusts very much Carlos is like a second father to her but at the same time she's dealing with these like horrible feelings toward the police officers right now and like totally understandably so it's just an interest I actually thought that that Carlos was a great character because he and you know to your point maybe about things being oversimplified I think he added like a really interesting complication and complexity to the plot yes sure I think that Carlos, he adds something to the story for sure. This is where like the adult in me gets a little bit annoyed with the book because I've listened to you talk about other books and you guys have talked about kind of like, if you were a kid, what would you be getting from this? And for me, the addition of Carlos almost feels like a Blue Lives Matter type moment. If you're not familiar with Blue Lives Matter, basically Black Lives Matter rose out of these police shootings of unarmed men. It was by three black women. They created this hashtag and it basically blew up. It became this whole movement. And in response to the movement of black people saying our lives matter and we shouldn't be shot dead in the street for reaching for a hairbrush or being black and walking down the street, police officers and their families and their supporters came back with, well, blue lives matter or all lives matter. Basically, their point was black lives matter, but everybody life, everybody's lives matter, which of course was not the intention of black lives matter. It wasn't to diminish anyone else. The analogy that I've often heard is like when someone says save the whales and then other people say, well, what about the rainforest? It's like, okay, yeah, save everything. And everyone can be an advocate for the things that they're passionate about. But I found Carlos to be put in the book to kind of like, it felt like he was there to show like police are humans too. And I think that like that diminishes the fact that this kid Khalil's life was taken by a police officer for no reason. Like, why do we need to validate that police are human when everybody knows that and people respect the police? It's not as if the police are getting shot dead in the street for no reason. Obviously their jobs are dangerous and they do hard work, but that's not the question. The question was never, is being a police officer difficult? Yeah, I, I totally hear what you're saying. And I think that for me, I felt like Haley was that for me. Like I felt like Haley was the character in the book who was really pushing this all lives right. matter agenda. Right. And I didn't. She really, was. She, she was. Push that agenda outwardly. But I felt like yeah. Carlos's role in the book was a more subversive way of like giving humanity to a group that I didn't think 
I don't think that they needed it. I don't think that Angie was really pushing against police officers as a whole. I think she was really more directly pushing against the bad cop, as they like to say. I thought Haley, honestly, was probably one of the best characters in the book because I was like, that person exists. That's a real thing. Like she is saying things that I have heard in my own life that I heard growing up as a kid because I went to a diverse school, but it was predominantly white. I went to a Catholic school. So, you know, I would say like maybe a quarter of the students were of color, but I feel like Haley, I was like, sure, that's right. I've heard that. And like, I've seen that and I see that now still. And I think that maybe this book is written for Haley's mm. and Haley's maybe not as far as Haley. Cause she's like pretty horrible, but like that felt like a real teenager to me. Yeah. Haley is star's white friend at Williamson who she's been friends with for years and years. And I think for me, like reaching back to my kid self, that was a hard, like that was a stretch for me. It was, I was like, how could they have been bet? How has this not come up before? Like that was for me a stretch. And, um, you know, Haley just starts saying these horrible things, both to Star and to Maya, who is their other friend who is, I believe, Japanese. And she just basically starts like disparaging Khalil and making all of these like really disgusting comments about like he was a drug dealer. Somebody would have killed him eventually anyway. And just really just like brushing off his life and his death. And the interesting thing is that for a huge majority of the book, Star has kept the fact that she's a witness to his death a secret. So a lot of the kids at school know that there's been a police shooting in Garden Heights, but Star has really done a good job of playing it close to the vest that she was there and that this was somebody that she knew. So for a long time, Haley's making all of these comments not knowing that she's talking about somebody that Star knows. Not that it should matter because she's being an asshole. She's fundamentally an asshole, an asshole teenager, which, as you said, there are many of. But, um, right. yeah, for me, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think she is an interesting, like, examination of a person who exists all too frequently in the real world. But for I was like, there's no way that you guys have been friends for this long. Like, that just didn't make sense to me. And I think as a teenager, I would have been like, how have you guys been BFFs for all of these years? But that's just... I don't know. I found it to be pretty believable. Really? Only because I think, like, when you're a kid, even if you're, even if it's not racial, but let's say, like, it's you're a girl and you're friends with boys and they make some comment about, like, a girl belongs in the kitchen. And you kind of, like, laugh and, like, push it off because you're 16 and you're like, that's stupid and dumb, but, like, this is my friend and boys are dumb. Like, I think that it would be easier. I think the reason that it bubbled up between them is because it was so personal to Star and she kind of, like, realized as the time went on that, like, she didn't, she didn't need to continue to allow someone to speak to her like that. But I, I think about the kind of ways that kids talk to each other and even adults, like even as an adult, I've had friends like make comments about things like either gender or race or I'm Jewish also. So I get, I'm all the things I'm all the um, boxes that you want to check. I'm okay. Jewish. I'm black. I'm a woman, you know, all the things, but like little comments that people make thinking that they're being funny. And like, sometimes they are funny, but also there's a term for this. I can't think of microaggressions. Mm -hmm. They're microaggressions. And I think that teenagers particularly like brush them off. And it's not until you become an adult that you realize like, oh no, we shouldn't have been, shouldn't have been making that joke. And I also made those jokes too, you know, towards other people. Um, so I think it, I think that they could have been friends easily. And I pulled out a quote from the book when Star is starting to reflect. And I think you're right. Maybe she's having this moment where she's looking back and realizing that Haley has kind of been an asshole all along. Maybe and Maya is having the same experience because Haley has said some really gross things about Asians as well, Asian people. And Star says, that's the problem. We let people say stuff and they say it so much that it becomes okay to them and normal for us. What's the point of having a voice if you're going to be silent in those moments you shouldn't be? 
And that's an important lesson. Like you do get to a point, I think, as a kid where it's easier not to rock the boat and not to put yourself out there in a way that's uncomfortable or that might draw attention to you. But over time, it does pile up. And it's interesting because I was having a conversation for another one of the New Reads November titles, Leah on the Offbeat, which when this airs will have been on the previous week. The guest for that episode and I were talking about how in new YA, authors are, are making an effort to include characters like a Haley in some cases to show that there's opportunity for growth, like intellectual growth for a kid. Um, in Leah on the Offbeat, there's a character who comes out with some racist comments and it causes a huge conflict between the main character and this other person and in the end there's some growth here like the character comes to the main character and is like I realize that this was really messed up I know I have a lot of learning left to do and that obviously really simplifies it but it was an interesting conversation because it's like as uncomfortable as a character like Haley is to read maybe somebody like her exists to show that people screw up all the time and people are a product of their environment. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't grow from that. So again, right. I mean, maybe maybe in an ideal world, Haley learned something from Star. And sure. five, 10 years from now, she's able to look back on this experience and be like, I really fucked up with the way that I treated my friends. And I was completely, completely off base about some of the things that I said. And watching this experience with Star and Khalil has really like broadened my horizons. Who knows? Maybe that's maybe that's part of the implication here about what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think you're right. I think that's why a character like that exists. And I think also if if we continue with the idea that the target audience for this book is kids in the suburbs and stuff, I think that they might recognize things or jokes that they've made in Haley. Then the adult part of me kicks in. And I think not to get too political, but we did just have an election yeah. and a large focus of the election had been women. There'd been a big push towards electing women, supporting women, feminism, this and that, which I'm totally behind. But then we get the results of how white women voted, you know, and it's like, that's so disappointing that the focus is on women until it becomes about a black woman. In the Stacey Abrams case, you know, 76% of white women voted against her. Um, so it's like, I think that these characters exist to show opportunity, but I also think they exist to show what we're actually fighting against or what is actually out there that becomes challenging. Because one of the things that I loved about this book, and I think probably my favorite, favorite, favorite thing about this book is that Star is a witness who hasn't come forward. And what that does to her and her family and the pressure of that and being in a situation where someone's basically talking shit about your friend who has been killed in front of you and you have to kind of like downplay your own emotions to protect yourself. And I think about so many of the Black Lives Matter activists have died since of, nat of natural causes, but a lot to do with like heart attack and stress and things that come from being a witness to this kind of violence. And I'm so glad that that was in the book because I think that while Haley's character um, is an opportunity to reflect back the reader of what they might be or where they might be in their life, I think it's also worth noting that this struggle isn't just about racism or not. It's about what does this kind of racism do to people internally? And like what happens to you when you're constantly being berated from so many sides, whether it's your friends or trying to keep a secret or figuring out how to speak out. And, you know, people who do speak out often are targeted by the police and this and that, you know. So I think that that part of the book really worked for me. Yeah, so much of the book is about Star like figuring out 
the best way to speak out, right? Because at right. first she's not speaking out at all. As you said, like she's a witness that doesn't come forward. And then she meets an activist named April Ofra who offers to represent her and to really like empower her a little bit to share her story. And as Star learns more about how little is being done to actually get justice for Khalil's life, like nobody's doing anything to punish the police officer. All that's happening in the sort of like court of public opinion is that people are talking about how hard this has all been on the police officer's family, which is such bullshit, obviously. So this all inspires Star to figure out a way to like see how she might be able to use her own voice. And so she starts by doing some interviews and then it's the grand jury and and she starts to speak out more even in small ways like she starts sharing with her family things she starts telling her dad that she's been seeing a white guy for over a year and she starts like telling different kinds of truths to people in her life and then at the end you have her standing on on the hood of a car with a bullhorn speaking out to her whole community about Khalil's life so I think it's an interesting exploration of like the different kinds of ways that you can speak out and sometimes people don't want to speak out and you have these other characters too you have Devante who also ultimately speaks out in a way that's difficult by sharing his story about being part of the King Lords gang and that's scary because he's then putting a target on his back about King who's the leader of this gang like there's all of these characters figuring out different ways to use their voices and figuring out if they're ready to do that. Yeah, totally. Which I think is interesting for kids. I think especially now, there's such a culture of activism, I think, in so many schools. I have my youngest sister is a senior in high school, and it's been really interesting to like watch her experience over the last few years as so many terrible things have been happening in current events. And she goes to a really conservative high school. There's actually been some documented racism at the high school, like very public stuff. There's been some really bad things that have occurred in the last few years while she's been there. And she happens to be like a liberal girl after my own heart, which I love. And just listening to the way that she talks to her friends about the news and the way that she's informed herself, like there's such a culture of like getting mad about these things. And so I wonder how these messages about using your voice land with different kinds of kids kids in the suburbs, white kids, kids who live in the city. Like there's just so many different ways that these kids are expressing themselves. And I think that might be interesting for a kid growing up in this age of activism to read and like see how they process that. Yeah, I think so too. I think there are good messages certainly in this book. I don't think that this, I think this book is a overall net positive. Like I think it's a good book. I just, for me, you know, personally as an adult, et cetera, et cetera, as I mentioned, but I do think that like this idea of standing up and like using your voice and even in small intimate moments, correct me if I'm wrong, but the scene between Haley where she kind of like, it's like, you're done girl is like in Haley's bedroom or in Maya's bedroom. I think the point is that it doesn't always have to be on the hood of a car with a blowhorn. Like it can just be a, you don't need to say that to me ever again kind of thing, you know, and it can be quick and like you can move forward, but that there is some obligation even for kids to speak truth to power. And like, I, I was raised that way that luckily I have really great parents and I have, my aunt is a, an activist. And so I always understood the power of that. And I, but I do think that that's like a great takeaway from this book is like, it can be as little as just like, no, thanks. You know, it doesn't have to be a lecture or on a stage, you don't need a microphone to do it. Like it can be personal. It can be one-on-one. It can be one. It can be a group of 10 people, you know? So I like that. I was almost disappointed that star 
ended up getting on the hood of the car. Because I kind of liked that throughout the course of the book, she was stretching some of these other activist muscles. Like, obviously, not a bad thing that she stood up and said what she had to say, but I thought that it was kind of interesting that she wasn't going super public. And like you said, I sort of preferred those intimate moments of, mm-hmm. of, of her speaking out. And so I don't know that I, like, needed that moment for her to be standing on the hood of the car. I think it's going to be great in the movie, which I'm going to go see this weekend probably. But oh, nice. I did like those smaller moments better. And I liked the moments with her family and with her friends. And I really think that the dynamic between her and Chris, her white boyfriend, was really interesting. And I'm curious um, if there's more that you have to say about that because I think the fact that she pushed him out of his comfort zone was really interesting. And he also pushed her out of her comfort zone because he encouraged her to open up a little bit to him. Like she had worked so hard to keep her two worlds separate and it was very uncomfortable for her to invite him and share with him what was going on in her life in Garden Heights. And so I think they... They had a lot to like learn from each other. Obviously, him way more than her. Like, he needed to learn a lot from her. But I thought that their relationship was really interesting, and he he was like a positive character for me, definitely. I liked Chris. What I remember most from him in the book is when Seven and Devonte were like ribbing on him. Like that was like my favorite stuff. Actually, true story. My high school boyfriend was a white boy named Chris. Really? Yeah, yeah. So obviously this book is based on my life. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, But I could relate to that. I have an older brother and he used to make a lot of fun of him. He used to call him Fletcher, which was his like white name, (laughs) which I thought was really, really clever. So I, I liked Chris. I thought Chris was like, I don't know. He didn't he didn't really stand out to me, if I'm being honest. Like there were other characters that I was much more interested in. Again, he kind of felt like a device kind of like Carlos to me as opposed to like a fully fleshed out person. Okay. Um, he was cool. <laughs> so you really liked her mom. Who were your other favorite characters? In I the liked book? her mom. I liked to dislike Haley. I liked the dad. I just hated the dad's dialogue scenes. They were just like so explanatory to me. You felt like it was too like luxury of like, here's how. Yeah, it was how. like after school special. It was like, okay, what do you do when you see the police? Well, dad, like I was like, ugh, get me out of here. Um, yeah. But like, I liked him. I thought he was cool. Like I liked it. Can we spoil on this show or? Oh yeah, we, we're, we're all for spoilers here. Go okay. ahead. I spoil on my show too. I just wasn't sure. This is spoiling, kind of. I liked that how he got out of like being a gangbanger was like going to jail for some shit he didn't do. Like, I thought that was really cool. But again, I don't love characters. So for me, that's like pretty high praise that I, there are two people that I was like legit, like these are good characters. Like the mom was really good and I thought Haley was really good, but uh, obviously she was a good character, but a jerk. Yeah, I thought generally her parents were great. I think her family was really cool. Seven was an awesome older brother. And I think the whole situation with him and his other house was really interesting so for listeners Mm -hmm. who haven't read the book star's best friend in garden heights is named kenya and she and kenya share this brother in seven so let me see if i can get this right star's dad and kenya's mom have a son seven and so he kind of bounces back and forth between star and kenya's houses and there's this sort of like interesting subplot where they're like battling a little bit for possession of seven like Kenya's always saying well like my brother this my brother that and star who loves seven and seven is very protective of her star is like just you know like he's my brother too and at the end of the book they finally have like this real conversation about it and Kenya needed seven in a way that star didn't necessarily because unfortunately Kenya's parents were really a disaster uh her dad and her mom were constantly 
arguing and fighting. He was hitting her. There's a lot of really problematic behavior in her household. And so she needed Seven to protect her maybe in a way that Star didn't because her house was a little bit safer and happier. So I think they come to an understanding about that. But I loved Seven. I think he really showed up for Star in some subtle ways in the way that he spoke to her. And he kind of just always gave her like the little nudge of like, you got this, I'm here. And as somebody who didn't have an older brother or any brothers, I'm I'm one of lots of sisters. I oh. you know I think everybody kind of wants a seven. I have a seven. You He's do. Cool. Lucky you. I have an older brother. He's pretty cool. He's a jerk too, but you know that's how brothers are. <laughs> yeah, seven had some moments. Seven had, but I think he generally was like sort of the heroic brother. Uh, she definitely yeah. idolized him. What did you think about the role of bravery in this book? Like that kind of came up a lot where people would use the word brave to talk about Star and she rejected that. She really didn't like the word bravery and she tells her mom like, please don't call me brave. And her mom at one point says something like brave doesn't necessarily mean that you're not afraid. It just means that you are afraid and going to keep going. And I think that's an interesting message for kids today because whether you're experiencing these terrible things firsthand in your community or hearing about them. Like the world is a really scary place. And so I think the fact that she kept talking about bravery over the course of the book is important and interesting. Yeah, I think so too. I I think that's right on. I think that bravery is definitely the act of pushing through when you don't want to, because the other option is that you shut down. Right. And I think that the mom correctly identifies, like, doesn't mean that it doesn't mean anything about you as a human besides that you're willing to keep going. I also think that the pushback on kind of like brave for a black woman might also have to do with like this idea of a strong black woman, Mm -hmm. that there's like this stereotype about black women that they're, um, they don't feel as deeply or they don't, uh, experience emotion in the same way or pain in the same way. I mean, as a nonfiction reader, (laughs) I read a lot about, um, race and politics and all that, but I read this great book called medical apartheid and it's really dense and it's not for kids and it's not even for most adults, but they talked about how back in the day, when black women used to give birth, they used to make comments along the lines of that they don't need pain medication, even though they had it. They don't need pain medication because they're like horses, they're bred to do this. So things like that, that create the stereotype around black womanhood, which has a lot to do with being strong, being brave, being unafraid. So I like that Angie Thomas put in, just because you're brave doesn't mean you're not feeling all the things, right? Like just because you're strong, doesn't mean that you're not feeling all the things. It means that you're feeling them and you're dealing with them and you're continuing through. You're making a choice to do these things. And like, I think that that is something that when we talk about a book like this, I'm glad that it was written by a black woman because I think that that's really important to telling the nuanced detail of what what these experiences are like. I think other people might not know that. They might not understand that being labeled as a strong black woman can sometimes feel almost insulting. Like you're not seeing me as a full person or you're not understanding that my bravery, you're just seeing this one part of it. You're just seeing me carry on, but you're not seeing me breaking down. You're not seeing me feeling anxious. You're not, you know, a lot of people in the black community suffer from mental illness because of these kinds of labels. So I'm glad that that's in the book. I think Angie Thomas was, I mean, she's 29 years old. She's a really interesting author. So I wanted to speak to that a bit because she's 29, which is very young. She's a black woman from Jackson, Mississippi. She had some personal experiences growing up, uh, seeing shootings on playgrounds And she was deeply affected by the news of police shootings starting in like 2008, 2009, like was when she really started to, it sounds like become highly aware of them. That happened to be when she was getting her creative writing degree. And so she started writing short stories inspired by her feelings about that. And the hate you give grew from 
those short stories, I was reading an article, um, I think in Salon maybe, or the no, in The Guardian, where they were talking about going to meet with Angie Thomas at like a teen book festival in Texas and how she was at like this long line of authors at tables. And she was the only black woman there, the only person who looked like she was under like the age of 40. And how all of these white kids at a Texas book festival were like flocking to her table. I think with a book like this, obviously we have to account for the fact that there's some hype here. And I hope that I hope that the message of this book outlasts the hype and that kids at that book festival like weren't just flocking to her table to get the autograph because this is like the book. I hope there were some good conversations going on with her about her inspiration for this book and what it really means to her. But I feel good about the fact that like she had the chance to share the story and has been so successful at it and that kids at a place like a book festival in Texas are engaging with her in a way that they may not have before this book came out. Yeah, I agree. I also did a little, you know, reading about where this book came from. And it's interesting. Uh, I think the first shooting that really like stuck with her was of Oscar Grant in Oakland, which is where I'm from. I was actually on BART that night because it was New Year's Eve. So that story like really is all, I always have a little like feeling in the pit of my stomach. And if you haven't seen Fruitvale Station, you should see it. It's about that story. It's not for children. Teenagers would be fine. It's with Michael B. Jordan and Ryan Coogler's the director. So it's like the prequel to Black Panther. <laughs> we'll also anyway, include a link to that in the show notes. There's, yeah. oh there's going to be a lot of good resources and interesting things to listen to and watch in the show notes. So definitely yeah. check those out, everybody. I like to just really pimp out the show notes. I loved that from that shooting she started writing these short stories and that as the shootings got more frequent and more intense and this became an epidemic, she turns it into a book. Like that her feelings about it became so big that it needed to, she needed more space for it. You know, I, I just really liked that, learning that about her. Something else that I read that I thought was interesting was that so she had she had written the short story, she started the novel, and then she took a break from it. I don't know if you read this while you were researching, but she took a break from it because she felt like she needed to allow for like a little bit more love to enter the story because oh, she yeah. was she was so angry. So so much of the story that she was writing at that point was all about hate. And I thought that that was interesting that like she waited until she could come from like a place of a little bit more love to write it. And I mm-hmm. wonder if that was because like she wanted to create some different kinds of characters that would round out the story. Somebody like an Uncle Carlos or a Chris, right. you know, I don't, maybe characters like that would have been harder to write in the moment when all you can feel is hate, understandably. Right. Well, I don't know if you do this on your show, but do you talk about the title? We don't, but we could. Let's, okay. the, well, and this one in particular is kind of a, a unique and meaningful title. So yeah. we should talk about it and we do sometimes when it matters. So let's do that. The Hate You Give. We, yeah. We always talk about the title on the stacks. It's like one of my favorite things. So The Hate You Give, you should say it because I'm sure you have it right in front of you, but it's uh, it's from a Tupac lyric. It's from the Tupac Thug Life tattoo, which is like, if you know what Tupac looks like shirtless, he had a giant Thug Life tattoo like across his abdomen, right? It was above his belly button. It was like the arch. And Thug Life stands for the hate you give little infants fucks everyone. Yeah. And so that's where the hate you give title comes from. But it's talked about in the book. She says it to Khalil when they're in the car before he's killed. She talks about it with her dad. She Um, has the poster. She has that's like the first thing she hangs in her room when they move to a new neighborhood is she has 
the Tupac Thug Life poster hanging in her room. It's like an extremely important concept for her. Speaking of older brothers, my brother had that poster also. Oh. <laughs> it's like icon- it's like an iconic poster. Yeah. I thought it was a good, I thought the title totally works. Um, I also love that the title of this book without the life part is just Thug. Like I love seeing that when people are talking about it on Instagram or wherever and they're like, oh, I just read Thug. I'm like, yeah, that's right. For some reason that really clicks with me. And I generally don't like the word thug. Like I find that word to be pejorative and et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure you can guess all the reasons why, but I do like that seeing it like on these ladies bookstagram accounts being like thug this, thug that. I'm like, oh lady, this is great. I think that the title works and I think that it's woven throughout the book pretty well. Yeah, it is. It's, I would say every few chapters, maybe every like eight to 10 chapters, there's some mention, some conversation about the thug life, the meaning behind that. Um, And then the word thug, if we're going to look at the title from that perspective, is all over the book because unfortunately that's the word that a lot of white people are using to to talk about Khalil in the aftermath of him being killed. So it does work on both levels. I have the movie tie-in edition, the paperback, and the spine is just thug, which – I mean, it's, oh, it's yeah. like, it's so I, when I bought it, when I picked it up, I was like, oh, okay. Cause I hadn't thought in my head until I saw it. I was like, oh, thug, that makes sense. It's a great title. And I liked that it meant so much and that, that meaning built over the course of the book. Yeah, I agree. I think that it'll be interesting to see what happens now after they, you give, it's been so successful. It hit the New York times bestseller list at number one. It, it stayed number one for something like 50 weeks. It sold so many copies. The book is coming out right about now as we're speaking it's just been like such a phenomenon like people are talking about it all over and I'm interested to see now if other YA writers kind of try their hand at a story about this content which is really serious to tackle and I'm I'm a little nervous to see. There have been a lot, actually. There have been others. I, well, I'm nervous. Uh, I'm excited to see like how it continues because yeah, this. Was well, I'm such waiting a for the like Blue Lives Matter version of this book so I can read it and then just be furious yeah. for like a month. We'll rip um, that one apart. Been, yeah, I'll come back and we'll do it. Yeah, uh, but there have been other YA police shooting type books. I'm not gonna remember the name. Maybe it's like Tyler Ferguson mm-hmm. was here or something like that. It's got the little boy on the cover with flowers behind Yeah, that it. was this, I think that was more recently. I think that came out in 2018. Yeah. This came out in 2017. Uh, that was another one I was looking at for New Reads November. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this this subject matter like continues to unfold in, in young adult fiction. Given some of your like mixed feelings about this book, what kinds of elements that were missing from this book would you like to see potentially in YA books about police shootings going forward? Is there anything specific that you think was really like missing here? Or is it really just about building that that complexity into the story more effectively than she did here? Yeah, I think one of the things that I would have loved to see, I guess two things. One of the things I would have loved to see would be a little bit more talking about like the racist language Mm -hmm. that is wrapped up in these conversations, like kind of giving kids who are coming up against a Haley or even maybe a teacher Mm -hmm. who has those beliefs. Cause I think that is pretty common too, where teachers, you know, parents just don't understand kind of thing, but giving a conversation where kids can understand, like, how do I combat this racist language that I'm hearing or this offensive language or things that people are saying that I know in my heart is wrong, but I don't have the language to respond to it. And kind of giving like a conversation like that. Cause I, I know 
that as a kid and still now, sometimes when I try to confront people about racism or whatever, they'll push back with these stock answers. And I kind of don't know how to respond. So like giving, having more conversations like that, because I think like when you start talking about these police shootings, there are so many people who want to reduce the blame or, or say, you know, they should have listened to orders or they should have done this. And like maybe in a book for kids, giving them some, not necessarily like talking points, but like showing that conversation, how that kind of conversation goes down and that it is uncomfortable, but like, cause with the Haley stuff, like there is pushback, but it also kind of like fizzles. Like I, I feel like it's like, she ends up leaving the room. One of them like gets mad and leaves or tells the other one to leave or something. Yeah. And it's like, well, where does this conversation end? How do we, how does this happen? Where do we go from here? And then the other thing, and this is just because maybe I'm a nonfiction lover, but I did read a YA nonfiction book not too long ago. It was called the 57 bus. Um, it's really great. And it's about, it was about a, a gender student. He was born as a male, um, but identified as a gender and wore a skirt in Oakland. And another boy who was a black boy who set fire to his skirt on the bus. And it was kind of like a joke and kind of like maybe a hate crime. And it was kind of a confusing thing because you didn't really understand because it was like two 15 or 16 year old boys. And what does this mean? And et cetera, et cetera. But it was written as nonfiction. Hmm. So it was really interesting because they were actually talking about the actual trial and the actual case and the actual incidents. Hmm. And I would love to see someone take a real life story like this and turn it into content for young adults that isn't fictionalized. So you really see the messiness of it. And I know that that's, I know nonfiction why it isn't as popular, but I don't know why not. I don't know why kids can't have true stories presented to them in ways that they understand. And I thought that this book, the 57 bus was like basically an adult book. Hmm. So those would be the two things that I would like to see moving forward. If we're going to be continued to discuss police shootings and, um, of unarmed black people. I was doing some reading about how this book has been integrated as required reading at schools, and it's definitely been extremely controversial and a lot of pushback from school districts and from, as one would expect, police departments who feel like a book like this being read in their local school districts is just like promoting anti-police feeling, which is just ridiculous. I think it'll be interesting to see like how the book continues to be part of curriculum because like you said, I mean, tools are necessary to help people, to help kids figure out how to have these conversations and and how to deal with these issues. And so, my friends who are teachers, like I talk to them a lot about about how fiction how kids fiction, YA fiction is then used in the classroom to have like more tangible conversations. And hopefully a book like this, if it is assigned for required reading, then catalyzes really interesting conversations in the classroom about like how kids can relate to each other, how they can communicate, how they can have hard conversations, how they can speak truth to racism and other like discriminatory behavior. Like hopefully that's happening. We don't know. And something that I also wonder is like, I wonder what kind of editing happened with this book. You know, you're talking Mm -hmm. about some of the things that are missing and I wonder if there was more discussion about like racist language maybe some more of that in the first draft that came out in editing like I don't I wonder how much of it was watered down right to target that like middle America white kid who needs it Right. Well, I wonder when you're talking about like required reading, I'm always fascinated by that idea because I am worried about who the teacher is. Hmm. 
right? Yeah. It makes a huge difference who teaches this book. It does. You know, and it can be two people who are progressive or it could be two people who are conservative who teach it differently from the other. But I, that type of stuff freaks me out. Cause like, I'm like, don't teach this book if you don't get this book. You know what I mean? Like, don't like, we shouldn't be teaching things like this if we're not sure that the correct information is going to get across. Not that this book should be banned. I don't believe in that either, but I'm right. just saying like required reading freaks me out a little bit when it comes to a book like this. And I'm sure your teacher friends, if you talk to them about the same book, they might have different opinions about it and I'm like how they would teach it and what they would be saying. So I just, you know, that makes me nervous. But the other thing that I want to just circle back on the other thing that I feel like could have been more prominent in this book or future books about this is also discussing the structural racism, mm. how we get here, how, like not just the language around it, but also like I, I oftentimes have these conversations where I'll be talking to some of my white friends and I'll be like, do you see how this is a racist thing? Do you see how A got to B and B got to C and C got to D? And that's what we're talking about. But you can't just talk about D all on its own. So kind of like drawing those lines, because I know like a lot of young people, myself included growing up, I didn't really think like racism was a thing. Mm -hmm. And it's not because I didn't know about racism in the past or like overtly racist acts, but I didn't understand that growing up in a place that had a worse school district was part of racism. Like I didn't get that. I just thought, Oh, you're poor. But I didn't understand that like those people who lived in bad neighborhoods live there because the government had a red line there. Like there's just so much layers and like, there's so much to it. I would love to see a little bit more. And I know that it's complicated, but I also don't think that kids shouldn't start learning about it early. It's okay. If you don't understand that all of it, it's okay. If it goes over your head, like things go over my head all the time. It doesn't mean that I don't read them. You know, there are ways to introduce that, I think, to right. kids and and teens, especially like I think teens are aware of like so many things now. And I hate to be like with social media, you know, but it's true, like with social media, with the way that content is available, like teens, I think, are able to absorb and understand probably much more than we might think they are. So I think that's yeah. a good point. So much to be discussed about this book. We could <laughs> probably know. continue for another hour. And I really appreciate your time, especially because this was not a book that you like were crazy about. I know sometimes that's hard. It's hard to like get into a deep conversation about a book that doesn't totally excite you. So I really appreciate yeah. you doing that and and you kind of like going back and forth with me on some of these things that we didn't necessarily agree on. And I think it ended up being like a really interesting conversation about it. Oh, good. I'm glad. I hope everybody still wants to be friends with me. <laughs> yeah. And still wants to listen to Tracy's podcast, The Stacks, which I love. And I will include oh, a link you. to. Before we sign off, as the avid reader that you are, I would really like to know what books you're reading now or books you've read recently that you want to recommend to our SSR listeners. Obviously, these books are not going to be for children because I've read, you know, three children's books in 20 years. Um, but one of them was The Hate You Give one for of them the SSR give. podcast. I've literally mentioned all of them. Hunger Games, Hate You Give, and The 57 Bets. But that being said, I'll kind of stay on a theme a little bit of okay. today, which is like racism and those politics around that. And one of the books I would recommend is called Eloquent Rage by Brittany Cooper. It's about becoming a feminist or being a feminist and what black feminism looks like. It's an amazing book. I actually listened to it on audio. She reads it. I think she is basically the smartest person in the room when it comes to feminism um, these days, but she is not pretentious. She's got all all the degrees and she can talk to you like you're her best girlfriend. And every once in a while she'll flex like a, a muscle where she gives you some crazy word and you're like, that's right. You're really, really smart. But the book is amazing. It talks about 
feminism. It talks about black feminism. It also talks about things like Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. It talks about Beyonce. It talks about, it's just a really amazing, well-written book that is accessible. And it's a great place to start, especially if you're white and you're looking for ways to connect with black culture and you're looking for ways to understand some of the stuff that I kind of glossed over today that I'm still working to understand, quite frankly. So that would be one. Another book that I loved, Fiction. Here you go. Spoiler. I liked a fiction book. Um, it's called Heads of the Colored People. It's by Nafisa Spires Thompson. Thompson Spires. I don't know which one comes first. I'm so sorry. It'll be in the show notes. It's short stories about basically middle-class black experience. It is not about any of the things that we associate blackness to be about. So it's not about any of the stereotypes. It's like super specific, crazy stories. One is a fruitarian. So she only eats fruit. One story is about a woman who are a teenager or something, 20s, who is trying to write a suicide post for social media to get the most likes. And it's like really funny and dark and smart. And it is a great reminder that like black people aren't just dealing with police shootings and like the racist stuff that we see, like that it's not all about gun violence in the black community. So those would be two books that I've read recently that I've really liked that kind of are good connectors to the hate you give, I would say. Well, I will include links to both of those in the show notes, as you mentioned, along with a link to The Hate You Give, in case you are like one of the only people that I've spoken to recently who hasn't read it. I do think it's <laughs> it's worth reading. If yeah. for no other reason, then it will spur on some interesting conversations like the one that Tracy and I had today. Tracy, thank you so much thank for, you, thank you. for flexing those YA muscles, for coming <laughs> to the table to talk about this with me. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Tracy. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>